I mean, this is a music journey that I'm on, and I think we should address the fact that at Jimmy Morrow's church, there is really no music. Just any old song. You want Pam to sing one too? Yeah, that'd be great. Would you want me to sing, preach the word, preacher man, or? That would be perfect. Yeah, I like that one a lot. You want me to tell you the background of it? Yeah, that would be great. Most of the time when you hear people talk about serpent handling music, what they're referring to is the cacophonous rock and roll music that Dennis Covington referenced in his book and so many other people have referenced. And it's this heavy, this rock and roll style worship music with a heavy beat and tambourines and everything going. And people have even suggested that they believe that that's what keeps the snakes disoriented or it charms them in some way. I actually even asked this question to Jimmy Morrow early in my time with him, and he said, you can't charm a snake with music because they ain't got no ears. <laughs> Preacher Marvin Turner, while he was in Kentucky years ago, he's dead and gone, and he said, the Lord gave him this song. When he died, he left it to the church, and he said, we can use it to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> You know, the thing's about music, right? Right. Well, we just go straight in to preach the word, 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 preacher man. And Jimmy Morris singing acapella. Preach the word, 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 preacher man. Preach the word, 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 preacher man. Heal the sick, heal the lame. Do it all in Jesus' name. Preach the word, 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 preacher man. Some folks go to college to learn how to preach, but some go to Jesus, they get down on their knees. Hassle me, I'm serving the Father and the Son. And when you add them all up, they're all three. This is not a podcast about religion. It is not a podcast about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling serpents, drinking poisonous substances, or other acts of great faith. This is a podcast about songs, songs of them that believe the signs, that have never taken their rightful place on the shelves of Americana. And perhaps that's because they are songs about the five signs of Mark 16, of handling serpents, drinking harmful substances, and other acts of great faith. Today's field recordings were captured at Edwina Church of God in Jesus' name in Del Rio, Tennessee. How's that? That's good. Y'all heard us thank you, Vaughn? Do you mind, Miss Pam? I appreciate it. Satan, your kingdom must come down. After I first quit preaching, I moved back home. I was going to an independent fundamental Baptist church for a little bit. I even preached a couple times. It's called I was like, well, I'll go here. I even took, sent my kids to the Christian school there for one year. And uh, the preacher gave out sermon notes. I took those sermon notes that he handed out. And then I basically just wrote why all of it was complete <laughs> all around the paper. And I passed it over to Kathy while she's reading. She just looked at it and she's like, yeah. And it was all the way in which you could use Jesus to make yourself better. And we got up and we left, and I've never been back. This is Alabama Astronaut, hosted by Farrell Gibbs.
the first night I ever went to a serpent handling church ever was uh, at the Old Rock House Holiness Church, as we discussed in episode three. I pulled up with Dave Garrett. We get in there. Billy comes back, and he makes us feel welcome and tells us a joke, and he immediately puts us at ease. Well, we're, we're sitting in the back, you know, me and Dave are in the very back row. Well, I start looking around at the uh, crowd, you know, and then there's this one lady, and she's a small stature, and she's got um, a lady's holiness kind of garb on. She's got her hair up, you know, in the way that the holiness women wear their hair, and she doesn't have any makeup on, and she's sitting beside a guy who appears to to be a significant other. She's looking the part, you know. Well, when the service gets going and uh, people are up and they begin to pray for each other and the snakes come out, there was some fire handled that night. She gets up and she has this really big camera, you know, not the kind of camera that your typical holiness person would bring to church. It's obviously a professional camera, and she's walking around, and she's taking just picture after picture after picture. You know, the service goes on. She's taking pictures, and she would go back and sit down. Billy Summerford preached at her a little bit, you know. What do you say, Abe? Oh, you know, people come here to take these pictures. They need to be coming here to find Jesus. I mean, not those exact words. I mean, maybe those exact words. I don't know, brother. It's been, there's been a lot, there's been a lot of serpent handling services between that one and now, but... Anyway, uh, they invite us next door to eat some soup and sandwiches that night. And they invited me and Dave over. So me and Dave walk over there. And, you know, I'm kind of mesmerized by the whole thing because I read all about Billy Summerford. I knew all the stories about him. I'd watched on the UTC website. And I was kind of like almost starstruck, you know. I mean, I was watching movies of them and stuff, and then you're in the room with them, and then you're talking to them, and they're really nice and genuinely nice folks. I'm like, well, this is this is not bad. Well, while we're over there, she's getting things signed, waivers signed by members of the church and trying to convince different people to sign these waivers that she's passing around. And uh, I mean, the pictures that she took that night are some of the very pictures that appear in that National Geographic article. I was there, I was sitting in the back. The person we believe Abe is referring to is a highly acclaimed ace photographer. We want to protect her identity because, frankly, Abe will be more free to tell his story without harming her reputation. Just let it be known, he says he holds no animosity toward her, that she is a fabulous photographer and was most likely doing her job the way any photojournalist would. He just believes the way she went about it epitomizes the way journalists covered the serpent handlers, with more regard to deadlines or capturing something dazzling than perhaps giving something back to their subjects. Friday night, I was at Rock House. Saturday night, I was at the Middlesbrough Church. The next day, I show up at Jimmy's, you know. He has church at 1 o'clock on Sundays. That was probably about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from Alabama. And it's not like you just went to the church down the road, you know. around the corner and I was expecting to see people there. But uh, instead, all I saw there was Jimmy. He was coming down the mountain and uh, Pam was already in the church and then the photographer 
was in the parking lot. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I said, I think I just saw you the other night at Old Rock House. And she said, yeah, that was me. And then I asked her, I was like, what are you doing? She's like, well, I'm taking some photos for National Geographic. And I was like, oh, okay, nice to meet you, you know, and that was it. And I, then I started speaking with Jimmy and she sat in the front row and I sat behind her and we had church. It was just Jimmy and Pam and her and me. And Jimmy told me, he said, none of my people are gonna come today because the photographer's here, which is kind of a bummer because I really wanted to see a regular service. It is what it is. By the time you're there, you're there, you know? Jimmy preached and uh, I mean, I just loved the whole service. The service was amazing. Preacher Jimmy Morrow is a longtime and highly respected member of the faith. If you were to catch him around town, you'd instantly know you were encountering a person who's highly unique. And you'd know this particularly by the oversized black t-shirts that he wears, often with sleeves scissored off, shirts with large, hand-painted lettering splashed in white, as if by a thick paintbrush, stretching all the way down to the shirt's untucked bottoms. All right, Abe, this is becoming a recurring theme. Is that him asking you? I believe he says, you want to sing us one? Yeah. Were you thinking about doing it? What were your thoughts when he asked you that? There was no way I was going to participate in a serpent handling service, buddy. Today's shirt says, John chapter 5, verse 20. And below that, Psalm 103, verse 3. On other days, you might find his black sleeveless t-shirt saying, Stretching forth thy hand to heal. Signs, Jesus' name. That's from Acts 4, verse 30. The pastor's expression is gentle, his eyes searching. But at the same time, his countenance appears as if he's always suppressing a smile. I like to thank God for another opportunity to stand and to read and study the Word of God. And Jesus Christ created Adam out of the dust of the earth and man became a living soul. As Abe steps into a new world, it's obvious Preacher Morrow mirrors the same relentless energy that gives both men their ever-churning commonality as their conquests scatter art of all kinds across the landscapes, musical, conversational, practical, and above all, creative. And it was debris from the foundation of the world, the family of sin, that Jesus Christ would have to come and die for the sins of the world. But God opened Revelation 17 and you realize that you just happen to be alive at the same time when this guy is. And he's making this great art and he's preaching this message. And though you may be the only guy in the church, I mean, it's like us, it's just, uh, it's not reproducible. You can't reproduce it, you know? You could go to every church in America. You know, me and you could start out, dude, and just go to every single church in America. I guarantee you that one would be singularly unique with a serpent-handling preacher who's preaching the Bible the way he does and the style that he does, who's also an artist like no other. And you're sitting there surrounded by his art, engulfed in his preaching. You can't reproduce that. You know what I mean? You couldn't hire the best actor in Hollywood to make that happen or to mimic that. You couldn't mimic Jimmy Morrow, brother. You know what I mean? If I find any in the way, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
He said, I'll bound them. And he said, I'll bring them back to Jerusalem. And I've said the word of God. He said, I would do man. Uh, he was putting them in prison. I killed them for the name of Jesus Christ. I know you don't like to be called a preacher, but you've told me several times that you are enthralled by preaching styles. It's hard to follow sometimes what Pastor Morrow is saying. Why is it at the same time so edifying, as you've said before? I don't share that with you. I mean, I get it. I can hear everything. He's, I could transcribe it all. The Bible said that old Ananias went in there and laid hands upon old Saul. Changed his name to Paul, received thy sight. Changed his name to Paul, received thy sight. The Bible says, you know what he did? The Bible says, you know what he done? After repented in the name of Jesus Christ, hallelujah, the Bible said, he was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for remission of sin. And the Bible said he began to preach Jesus, hallelujah. After he repented in the name of Jesus Christ, hallelujah, the Bible said he was baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and the Bible says he began to preach Jesus, hallelujah. You know what old man and I said? He said, Lord, we heard how this man beat and killed and slaughtered all that called upon your name. Jesus told old man and I, the Bible said that the word of God is going to show him what great things that he must suffer all for the name of Jesus Christ. I know, I couldn't, I, I was straining to make out some of the things that were in the middle. Maybe it's because I, I, you know, I'm a deep South resident. I lived in Alabama almost 50 years. Well, I lived, I lived in, in Appalachia for nine years of my life. I mean, I became an adult in Appalachia. I mean, from 18 to 27, I lived in various parts around Appalachia. And I, I mean, the dialect is something I comprehend. So it could be that. Wait, 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 wait. I had to think about it for a second. It's not an accent thing. Because at the beginning of this episode, when you guys are just chatting, I can understand absolutely everything that he's saying. Preacher Marvin Turner, while he was in Kentucky years ago, he's dead and gone, and he said, Lord, give him... This is going back to that preaching style thing that you always tell me about. When he gets into his preaching style, that's when every few words or so I strain to understand what he's saying. Because I can understand everything he's saying in every conversation you two have ever had. My concern is that what if there are people listening along and this preaching style, this cadence, is a little bit foreign to them and they haven't been steeped in the tradition of Southern preachers like this. And they, like me, you know, sometimes don't pick up a word or something like that. And they're straining to understand what he's saying. Well, it's like this, you know, if I tell you there's a treasure chest, do I got to open it for you too? Or can you just go there and open it yourself? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like if we tell them, hey, this is really great. You know, maybe somebody from California goes there and they're like, I can't understand a thing he says. Well, you know, take a recorder, record it and listen harder, you know? <laughs> In a church where a cappella reigns as the primary mode of worship, it has occurred to Abe that perhaps the most substantive music to be found in Edwina Church of God is the sermon itself, sung primarily by Pastor Morrow, the way it's done in other denominations, such as old-time Baptist. And they said, either the end of the world has come or God has died. They were right on the second. And out of the midst of that darkness, he cried, My God, my God, in the name of Jesus Christ, 
He said, I'll bow down. And he said, I'll bring him back to Jerusalem. And I've said the word of God. And there's a good man. Uh, he was putting him in prison. I killed him for the There's lots of different kinds of preaching styles that exist in small churches out upon the countrysides of the American South. You know, there's the hack. We call them hackers. You know, the guys that would follow up everything they said with a ha, you know. (laughs) The Bible says, ha, you know, you must be born again, ha. Maybe something better than that. You can get fascinated with Jesus. That's the kind of power that God's got. Why do they do that? I don't know. But it was something that, uh, I mean, the guy that walked my wife down the aisle was an old hacker. He was a hacker from Kentucky, a Baptist preacher, and he hacked like a maniac when he would preach. My wife's father was no longer alive, and that was her pastor, and he walked her down the aisle. So they would preach in that style, kind of the the singing chant type thing? Not only that, I mentioned to you the other day the guy that I named my son after, Evan Roberts of the Great Welsh Revival. If you read about those Welsh preachers back then, there was a melody to their preaching. You know, Jimmy Morrow's, the style that he preaches is it's just from another time. But that was the way that a lot of men would preach. Men that were not necessarily educated, but the men that were called, you know. Some folks go to college to learn how to preach. I don't know. I've just always been fascinated with the different styles. I mean, mostly I could never stand what the people were talking about. So at this point in my life, you know, I'm mesmerized by the artistic nature of the style in which they deliver the message. But it's something that's swiftly being lost. It's just another portion of American Southern culture that's being lost to time. But, you know, right there in Edwina, it's alive as it ever was. There's some things that he uses repetitively, and they're almost like hitting the space bar, you know, and then he gets back down to the preaching. It's got to be extemporaneous, what he's doing, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, it's spirit-led preaching. It's not studied preaching, it's spirit-led preaching. Jimmy Marr is a man who read the Bible 87 times. I would imagine that there's not a theological question that he hadn't given a lot of thought to. And this was really similar to the way in which I pastored. The idea was you don't study for one message. You study the Bible, and then you let the Spirit of God control you and move upon you to preach what is needed at that time and place. But uh, I can guarantee you Jimmy Morrow didn't study for any of those messages per se. He just lives his life in a way where he's always ready. Jimmy Morrow could go to another man's church and they could say, hey, Brother Jimmy, come on up and preach. He wouldn't have one iota of nervousness. He's just ready to go. He's just ready to go. His gas gauge is on full all the time. Whereas, you know, most other preachers or pastors, they study for one message, they deliver that message, and they put those notes away, and then they'll come back and preach that message again in about five or six years. (laughs) Have you ever noticed how the church services in the Serpent Handling Church is almost like a battle? When that church service starts, it's almost like there's people that are in the balance and they get up, you know, they're not doing well and the church prays for them. It's like a spiritual tug of war. 
Andrew Hamlin is a perfect example of this as well. It's just, you know, there's people, they need something from the Lord right then, you know, right then, right there. And, um, and the devil's fighting hard to keep those people from getting what they need. Now, we're going to have to band together and we're going to have to all unite and we're going to have to get victory over the devil. Just like there's a dividing spirit in here. Well, I mean, there was there was a battle going on. There's a spirit that's come in to try to ruin this service. Every time they have church, it's almost like there's a battle. Now, if you come in there with some message that you wrote down in sheets of paper and you're just going to get up there and read this message off to us, how are you fighting the devil doing that? You need to be up there and you need to move left when the devil moves right. You know what I mean? Think about it, children. The Bible said one of the greatest persecutions and that came against the church in Jerusalem, I was Saul. And they went into Jerusalem. I know there's Pentecostals all over the world that speak in tongues. They profess to cast out devils. They profess to heal the sick with the laying on of hands. But there's not very many people who take up serpents, and if they drink deadly things, it doesn't hurt them. I mean, it's just real convenient to take the two that can harm you and try to make them figurative or spiritualize them in a way whenever you take the other three there and you fulfill them word for word. Manufacture the critic's argument against that. Yeah, but go ahead. Manufacture one. Picking up a snake, that's tempting God. Farrell, if you can tempt God by obeying his command, that would be a very strange way to tempt God, wouldn't it? <laughs> by obeying what you believe to be a command. I think what most people have a problem with, with these serpent handlers, is not that the fact that they pick up snakes or they drink poison or any of those things. I think what it is, is it's the idea that their faith and their belief could cost them something. It could and it does occasionally cost them. And I'm not aware of anywhere in at least Western Christianity where having faith costs people. And this was the thing that occurred to me when I was in, I remember being a young preacher in my mid-20s in Middlesbrough, Kentucky, when this concept dawned on me. And that was from the gospel message that Jesus gave himself when he said, come and take up your cross and follow me. And when I read that the first time, and I truly began to try to unpack that, and what that meant for me, I found out in my own preaching and in my own belief structure that I had erected in that brain of mine that I was concerned with what Jesus could do for me. I was mostly interested in Jesus as a means to another end, and that end was always self-serving. It was never a cost. It was always in ways in which it would benefit me. And then whenever I read that Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me, that began to make me explore the idea of faith as a cost. And maybe Jesus wasn't just a means to an end. Maybe Jesus was supposed to be the end all along. Okay, well, what if there's further argument against that? Picking up your cross, that means picking up a rattlesnake? You're crazy. So that means I got to go pick up a rattlesnake. Well, what was the cross? Self-sacrifice. Sacrifice. It was an instrument of torture and death. It was his demise. It was the picture of him taken to the outskirts of town and punished to death. That's what it was. I heard a man say, a skeptic on this the other day, he was putting down serpent handling with great fervor. 
The secret expert Farrell has been speaking to about serpent handling is his beloved cousin, Tom. You will hear an audio of their conversation in a moment. Farrell has not yet named the skeptic when speaking to Abe because he's afraid Abe could hold back criticisms if he knows that it's Farrell's cousin. He said something interesting. First thing he said is, I don't think Paul was beating bushes to find rattlesnakes. The other thing he said that has lingered in me is, daily life is trying anyway without adding a snake on top of it. Somebody's saying that day-to-day life is incredibly trying and difficult. What about that? That we handle snakes every day. That we're all serpent handlers. I mean, if you're telling me that you can't take up a serpent because you can't go look for one, if you believe... Acts 2.38 says to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. If you believe that, the only way you're going to get immersed in water is to go find a body of water that you can immerse yourself into, or you can wait for a flood to come upon your head. And I would suggest that if you believe Acts 2.38, it'd be best for you probably just to go find a body of water and get baptized in it, as opposed to waiting for a flood. It ain't like just because God wants you to be baptized that he's got to provide the water too. And in the same way, the holiness people believe, or many of the holiness people believe, that they should take up serpents. That don't mean God has to throw it on them. We handle serpents every day, right? So what you're doing is you're spiritualizing the word serpent there. And this is the way that many people will try to interpret the scriptures. They will take it literally word for word wherever it makes sense and it's comfortable to them and it fits what they want to believe. But then they spiritualize whatever they don't want to believe or makes them uncomfortable. And I would just say that there are hundreds of millions of Pentecostals or charismatic people that fall into some brand of that type of Christianity that practice the tongues. They practice the laying on of hands, healing of the sick casting out of devils. But to my knowledge, there's just a handful of people that literally take up serpents. And literally, if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. I just think it's a bit ridiculous if you want to interpret three of the signs literally and two of them figuratively. And the two that you interpret figuratively happens to be the one that could cause you harm. And the three that you interpret literally are, you know, quite possibly the the easiest to be faked. You can't fake holding a serpent. You can't fake drinking poison. You either do it or you don't. When I first realized what it truly was, you know, before I started reading the literature on it, I had the belief that they handled the serpents just because they were, you know, we're going to test out my faith here. We're going to see if I'm in the faith or not. If I'm in the faith and the serpent won't bite, if I'm out of the faith, the serpent's going to bite me. That's what I thought. That I think that most people, when they hear serpent handling, if they even, if they've ever heard it at all, that's what they think. I found out it wasn't that at all. They do believe. I've been told so many times, they said, Brother Abe, it says they shall take up serpents and don't say they shall not bite. They know that they might get bit. It took me all the way back to where I was at in Middlesbrough, Kentucky in 2007 when it dawned on me that the only reason that I or very many of the people most of the people that I knew and the way that I had presented the gospel my own self was Jesus as a means to an end. It just reinforces the idea that the cross was not something that was desired, not in the same way that people desire heaven or people desire peace or people desire blessings. How many people's ever desired a cross? The desire for a cross would be very similar to the desire for taking up a serpent, wouldn't it? We're talking about this uh, imagined skeptic. 
we can speculate about what people are going to say. And we can actually go on YouTube and see a bunch of the prefabricated responses that are immediately going to jump into our inbox upon release of episode one. <laughs> Have you ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? No. Fox's is F-O-X-E apostrophe X, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And there was a time Protestant Christians held that book in the highest of regard. It was one of the most published books after the Bible back when the printing press began. Fox's Book of Martyrs records the story of people who were martyred for the cause of Christ. So somebody telling me that there is enough of hard things for us to handle in 2021, it just tells me they've never read Fox's Book of Martyrs. There was a time when having the conversations that you and I are having right now would have had our tongues chopped out. It recounts the stories of people who dared, who dared to work out their own salvation with fear and trembling in face of extreme cost. And those people, their faith cost them something. There are very few places on the face of the earth where being a Christian or identifying with Christ is going to cost you something in the same way that it has done in the past. You know, Fox's Book of Martyrs records instances of just children who would profess faith in Christ that would be taken and they would be brutally tortured and killed. And I even remember one instance where a young girl was brutally raped and put on this machine that they had created where they tied up their limbs and then people would pull them until they just tore them into pieces. And that was the price that people had to pay for identifying with Christ. How about that? You know, if we're living in that day, whether or not you pick up a serpent or not really is, is of no effect. Professing faith in Christ is going to get you brutally raped and killed. And uh, I don't know. I mean, that's how Christianity grew, but it grows in the face of adversity. But now, as you know, it's, it became the American religion. And look what happened to it. Powerless. It's powerless. It means nothing. The word Christian means nothing. I'm going to read this book now. But after all this snake book and bodies asunder, you're going to have to send me like something lighter reading. Well, that's at night time, buddy. You know, I, my, my mind is on all this during the day. Then I go home and I watch King of the Hill and fall asleep. Because <laughs> God's little children got a battle with the devil every new day. There ain't no beginning and there ain't no end until the games he plays. But you can walk up to him full of Holy Ghost fire. Look him in the eye and say, devil, you're a liar when you go down. In the name of Jesus when you go down. Director of Religious Studies, Purdue University. Also, Notre Dame Theologian in Residence, Purdue University. Also, Farrell's very much loved cousin on his father's side, Dr. Thomas Riba. When you go down in the name of Jesus, when, when you go down. Did you know, by the way, that you have snake handlers there in Indiana? Is it the southern part of Indiana? Now, of course, you'd ask me a question I don't know the answer to. Yeah. It's good to see you on my screen. Good to see you, too. Listen, I won't keep you all day, and I really am not going to ask you a million questions. I really just have a couple. But let me tell you first about who this is. Sure. 
I have a friend named Abraham Partridge. He's an ex-fundamental Baptist preacher. He preached for about nine years, and then he quit the faith. He found Bob Dylan and Towns Van Zandt, and he became a musician and a folk artist, and now he's successful, particularly around the Southeast. Neat. Yeah, it's really cool. After this conversation, I'll send you a bunch of his stuff. But I remember a time when he first started contacting me and telling me about the Serpent Handlers, when he was putting this awesome art book together. From that, I had a lot of questions. I hadn't really studied this part of the Bible. And so I asked him a million questions. And he would tell me about the way that they had trained him when he was coming up in the Fundamental Baptist Church. And it all has to do with this really interesting theory that there could have been a window of time on earth that there was very little divine help available. And that perhaps, and I'm just relaying this theory that Abe mentioned months and months ago. So this is all from my own recollection. And I'm not saying that this is what Abe believes now. But the idea was that for a period of years on earth, there could have been very little or no manifestation of God or Jesus or the Holy Spirit here. And on top of that, during this unprecedented moment in history, there was also no Bible to preach from. So the task of spreading the gospel through this time became all the more impossible, where the only thing that a select few people were armed with that was supernatural was the ability to drink poison or to handle a rattlesnake, or to understand foreign tongues. Let me tell you the way I envisioned it when Abe first told me. First, there was the Old Testament, and that was the way that God dealt with people. And then there was the New Testament, and Jesus was the way that God dealt with people. And then after that, when Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit was the way God dealt with people. And so in all three cases, God was dealing with or communicating with people in a particular way, either himself in the Old Testament, Jesus in the flesh, or the Holy Spirit after Jesus ascended. And now here's the whole rub. The last thing that Jesus did was he bestowed upon his 11 before he ascended the five signs. Those five miracles so that they could spread his word, which means speaking in tongues is actually that they could speak foreign tongues when they went to foreign lands. Shalom. We have come from afar to spread the gospel of our Lord. We are hungry. We are thirsty. We are in need of medicine. Please do not be frightened that we can speak your language. Would you consider helping us? They could pick up serpents. They could do miracles because they didn't have Jesus there on earth and the Holy Spirit hadn't fallen yet. So those five miracles were for 11 people on the entire face of the earth to spread the gospel. And it was just for them. But as soon as the Holy Spirit came down, the five signs no longer applied. They had help now. And so the speculation was way back when Abe was coming up in the faith and when he was training to become a preacher, that he believed this could be the reason that people were getting bit out there in the serpent handling church, because those passages were meant for a particular historical group of people and for them alone. Take for instance, Tom, my family's church. They speak in tongues, they cast out devils, but they don't drink poison, and they do three of the five signs, but they don't do five. And so that is exactly the sort of thing that's driving him crazy. It's made this energy that has resulted in art and music 
and all of this flurry to go study these people and their music. So, I would love an official theological take. There's nobody in the world I would rather have more than yours. This isn't about being theologically correct or trying to prove something that is not provable in a conversation. It's really a show about Abe Partridge. So, there you go. I was kind of interested in this a long time ago, and actually it was your mother spurred on by Barb who had covered a group. I don't know where they were located at the time. I think Tennessee. And she came away, Barb, this was at least the way it was narrated to me. She came away kind of impressed, but at the same time disturbed by it, thinking, well, maybe is this something we should do? (laughs) Dr. Ryba is referring to Farrell's sister, veteran anchor at WTVD ABC News, Raleigh. Hey, Farrell, I'm just going to kind of see if I can even send this to you. If I can, I'm in the audio booth, and it's um, probably the better place to lay down track. Okay, three, two, one. Barbara Gibbs, at the beginning of her career, either in Roanoke, Virginia, at WSLS, or in Lexington, Kentucky, News Channel 36 WTVQ, covered a story on serpent handlers that sent ripples of discussion out into the community and obviously back into her own family her brother, and her cousin. This coverage sparked a curiosity in Dr. Ryba back then, and when he heard about it, he thoughtfully studied it out. Alabama Astronaut is still in the process of locating this particular archived tape. See, I mean, I think a lot of the persuasiveness of these people has to do with the passion of their faith. I don't think it has a lot to do with the scriptures. Here's the thing, the the passage And this is true of a lot of the scriptures. They're prophetic, but they're not imposing an obligation or even a suggestion. Does that make sense? And I don't disagree with your friend, by the way, about what they're able to do. Maybe the 11, maybe it was 12, because quickly there was a 12th added, right? The scripture says to replace Judas. But anyway, I don't doubt that they had the ability to do this, but I don't think it was technical expression is deontic. It was a command. I think it was a description of what could happen to them and how they would be protected. So that's one part of the way I would answer. I don't think it's a question of faith one way or another because the scriptures are fairly clear about not tempting God, right? And what you're essentially doing by drinking poison or having a snake bite you or putting yourself in harm's way when it's not necessary is you're essentially, you're saying, here now, I'm doing this extraordinary thing to prove my faith, now heal me, or whatever it happens to be. Why would you do that? And I don't think God operates that way anyway, I mean, from my experience. So I think it's actually dangerous, and it turns another scriptural principle on its head, which is the idea that uh, God should ever be challenged, right, excessively. All that you know, this idea that Abe has, this several-year window where there was no manifestation of God on earth, while 11 or 12 people, as you say, were charged with spreading the gospel worldwide. I know this is a difficult question. I know it's complex. But when do you think that the Holy Spirit descended? First of all, I think all three members of the Trinity are active at every period of history. But it's like foreground and background. You have a dominant, going back to the the three ages, you have a dominant presence, and then you have background presences, right? So they're trinity, they're all God, so they're all active. But if you mean, you know, in the upper room at the time of Pentecost, I think that's when the Holy Spirit comes in force, because it's promised by Jesus. So Jesus ascends, sends the Holy Spirit, we're in the age of the Spirit. Same day, right? Up and down. Right. Okay. And, you know, I used to speak in tongues and so on. I don't do that any longer, not because I don't believe in it, but because I didn't find it to be particularly very helpful 
It's not necessarily my gift, too, if you look at all the possible gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to walk out in faith if you're being persecuted. It's another thing if you're sitting by the campfire and a snake bites you and you fling it into the fire and you're healed. It doesn't affect you. But you're not going looking for snakes. I don't think Paul was beating the bushes looking for snakes, right? And so going out of your way, I, you know, we, we have enough tests of faith without having to go out and look for them, I think. So there you have it, Abe, the secret skeptic. Let's say you're out there one day at a show and people want to ask you about this program. And there's a microphone set up for a Q&A. And somebody walks up and says exactly what my cousin Tom just said. What would you say to that? You know, maybe it's not the correct interpretation. Maybe that's not the correct interpretation of Mark 16. I simply consider myself a seeker and unable to truly grasp and understand a lot of these concepts after which I'm chastened. But I was trained as a Baptist preacher in dispensationalism until somebody else comes along and shows me where I'm wrong or shows me where the Bible is right about it. Well, then, you know, I would consider such things. But, you know, we always go back to that conflicted thing because just two weeks ago I was in a church and I witnessed what I thought at that time was a miracle, that what I witnessed was the power of God. You see what I'm saying? So... Whether or not you're interpreting that portion of the scriptures right or not, I was there, and I've seen it. I've seen a copperhead go limp in a man's hands as he was singing some of the most powerful songs and praises to God, most beautiful praises to God that I've ever heard in my life. It's all After the service was over, this was the first time I'd ever met Jimmy. And so I had um, brought some money up with me and, and I was looking at his paintings. And he said, hey, I got a bunch more at my house now. He's like, you can come over and look at them if you'd like to. And I said, of course, you know. Ever heard that and she tagged along right with us under the guise of wanting to buy a painting. Well, while we're traveling over there, Jimmy's uh, pulled over at this one little store, like a country store out on the side of the road. And we all pulled up. Jimmy said, I'm going to run in and get some ice. And when he did, about fell over herself getting out of the car and running out in the middle of the road taking pictures of Jimmy walking into a country store and talking to people. And he came back out and he said, What are you doing? taking up pictures of me going to the country store, you know? He couldn't believe that. But then um, we drove on to his house and he showed us around to some of his art and he showed us in his old church building where he keeps loads of art and he keeps records of his family history. He keeps records of serpent handling history. He keeps records of moonshiners and it, it is like an Appalachian library. It holds the wisdom of an entire people group, you know, and uh, and I'm blown away. I'm blown away. Well, just constantly snapping photos, constantly. We go back, sit on the porch, and then she gets into him about signing this waiver. And Jimmy's like, I ain't signing no waiver. And uh, it begins like a 45-minute sales pitch, like a used car salesman, just over and over and over. Every different angle that could be imagined, she pursued that angle. And it was just um, 
I was just sitting there, the awkward third wheel. I mean, I felt I, I wanted to leave, but at the same time, I'm sitting here with a man that I had been seeking out for three months, you know? And finally, after about 45 minutes, Jimmy was like, look, I'm not signing the waiver. That's the end of it. And he did it the kindest way I think I've ever I mean, he was long suffering. And that was one of the moments. I mean, I'm kind of glad it happened because I saw I saw long suffering in action because I would have told her to hit the road a long time before he did. I mean, I was about ready to tell her myself, you know, just like get out of here. He don't want to sign the waiver. Now leave, you know. But he's long-suffering, and he was kind. And he's like, hey, this is not personal. I don't have anything against you. Well, Jimmy, you told me that I could come. He's like, listen, this is not personal, but I ain't signing no waiver. Well, you told somebody we could take pictures. He's like, I'll let you take pictures, but I ain't signing no waiver, you know? And uh, anyway, it just went on and on like that for 45 minutes. And then she finally left, and she was she was dissatisfied. She She did not get what she came for, and she was huffing and puffing. This was my first time ever going up there. I felt no loyalty to neither one of them. In fact, I mean, I'm sitting on Jimmy's front porch. It ain't her front porch I'm sitting on. So, you know, if I had to call a side, I was, you know, going to be in the man's whose front porch I'm sitting on side. <laughs> it wasn't none of my concern. You know what I mean? I'm sure she wished I would have said something, but I wasn't saying a thing. I wasn't there for no pictures. I wasn't there for no National Geographic. I wasn't there to talk to her. I was there to talk to Jimmy and look at his art and try to learn a little bit, you know. She was encumbering my journey. That's the way I viewed it. I didn't care if she got the waiver signed or not. I just wanted her to be gone. Then she leaves and Jimmy says, all right, you can come on in here now. I ended up staying at Jimmy's house that night. The sun went down and I was getting worried about where I was going to sleep. Jimmy offered, he told me I could go park back at the church if I wanted to and sleep in my van there at the church on the church lot, you know, but I didn't want to do that. But uh, we went on in his house, you know, and Pam got me a Coca-Cola and made me a sandwich, and we sat down there, and Jimmy just started putting book after book after book in my hand. These are like binders, not books really, but binders filled with papers and pictures, things that he's collected. It's just serpent handling history. He was asking me what I do, you know, I told him I wrote songs and traveled around and sang to people. And so he was like, oh, you're a songwriter. And then I said, yes, sir. And so he, he pulls out this binder full of poems. I mean, it's thick and it's filled with poems that he wrote for Pam, like love poems, you know. You want Pam to sign one too? Yeah, that'd be great. And he's reading them to me and Pam's over there blushing, you know. And uh, it was just... Uh, it was a surreal experience, man. It's one of those moments, you know, that you have in your life where you're just like, I don't know how I got here. A whole series of very strange circumstances lead you to a moment, you know, where you're just like, this is like something out of another world, you know? Peter thought his eyes and me Wouldn't let Jesus wash his feet Keep your hands on that platform I mean, Jimmy's the kind of guy that isn't supposed to exist. He's not supposed to exist in 2021. I've thought about it, and it's been in the back of my mind ever since the first time I went up there. But it's like a picture of exactly what's happening to these folks. 
Did you know that if you climb that mountain on that lot right next to Jimmy's, that if you were to scale the top of that mountain and look down, there are machines that are eating that mountain up, dude. No. They are turning it into a quarry just on the other side of that mountain. They offered Jimmy money for that lot, and he told them no. They offered to pay for the church and everything. They were going to buy it from him and turn that whole place into a rock quarry. And he said no. So if you were to scale that mountain on the other side, dude, there's big old backhoes and bulldozers and everything, and they're tearing that mountain down and turning it into a quarry. Are you positive it is on the other side of that mountain? 100%. Okay, all right. I don't need some pissed off fan Google earthing this thing. And when you turn right, when you pass the old truck stop that's all burned out with all the broken down Jeeps in front of it, and you turn right, if you look through the woods right there, you'll see it. And I asked Jimmy about it, and he said, yeah, they're turning that into a quarry. So it's just on the other side. I mean, it's just like modern, industrialized society trying to tear the mountain down that the church stands on, you know, right on the other side. If you could get an aerial photo of that, it would win all kinds of photography awards. There's a lot beside his church. It's basically the side of a mountain. Jimmy cleared the mountain himself by hand, rolling logs down the mountain. At the very top, there's a stone where Jimmy climbs up that mountain every Sunday and he prays. And he's inscribed his name and Pam's name into the side of the rock. He's built a two-room, rough-hewn, rough-cut wood cabin there where he houses a bunch of his art that he shows people when they come to his church. The church building is beautiful. There's monuments. He's made a monument to the left side of the door that talks about how the church was founded in A.D. 33 on the day of Pentecost. And then he has a monument that he's also built to Jesus Christ that he's put up there. It's made of mountain stone and concrete that he's poured himself. And then when you walk into the church, it's by far the most beautiful. Um, It's like a cathedral. It's like an Appalachian cathedral. Yeah, it's not stained glass window because nobody can afford it, but it's the the regular man's version of that. He uses color, really bright, vivid colors in his paintings, and all of his paintings line the walls. And uh, you can lose yourself just looking at all the paintings in the church. And they always keep it sparkling clean, you know, Pam and him keep it clean. And I mean, every time I drive up, man, I'm happy. I'm happy to be there, you know. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Next time on Alabama Astronaut, the story takes a turn. A serpent handler approaches Abe about making a studio record. He told him like a full-blown record, instruments, and full production. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, I wouldn't even attempt to go into it without having about $5,000. He's like, I don't believe in selling anything anyway. I believe in just giving away. God gave me these songs, I believe, and gave them away. I said, you know, I'm, I'm not the best at it, but I could probably come up there to where you guys are. I mean, I've never recorded anything that I was like, this is killer. That, to me, is a whole art that I've never explored, but I would be willing to learn it. And if you've already got some basic knowledge and equipment, that would be killer, dude. We just need to go up there together. Jesus, Farrell and Abe head up to Middlesboro, Kentucky together in Abe's white touring van to attempt something that to their knowledge has never been done before, capturing studio recordings of serpent handling songs and making an album. 
Don't miss the incredible journey that unites these two friends, putting them on the road together for the very first time. We will return to Jimmy Morrow's church and to the fascinating field recordings Abe caught while at Jimmy Morrow's. There's so much more to unearth here, but if you want to hear some special portions of Abe's recordings right now, head on down to alabamaastronaut.com where Abe has been busy collecting videos, pictures of his interviewees, and you can also find extra podcast episodes. But perhaps, most importantly, you can find songs upon songs upon songs. Also, the bonus content tab on the website gives access to a bonus episode corresponding with today's episode. It's about an old legendary church that's buried somewhere in the brush behind Punkin' Brown's grave. You better go down in the name of Jesus when you go down. Speaking of Dr. Riva, we at Alabama Astronaut can't thank him enough for spending time chatting with Farrell and giving his thoughts. Of course, most of all, we want to thank Jimmy and Pam Morrow for singing songs for us, for being so kind to Abe, and for giving us a glimpse into their faith. There are hundreds of hours of recorded conversations with Abe by this point, and often in those conversations, he reiterates just how much respect he has for the both of you. Music today! Banjo by our man, Abe Partridge. Also, that fiddle was performed by Abe's wife, Kathy. Thank you, Kathy. Intro and theme song by Abe Partridge. Satan, your kingdom must come down. And finally, the debut of Abe's performance of When You Go Down with backup vocals by the one and only Cassie Coos. Be sure to come back next week. You don't want to miss Abe taking Farrell to his first serpent handling experience on the way up to their album recording session. As Abe puts it, it will surely be something that Farrell will never forget. We appreciate you. Be sure to click follow on whatever platform you're using so you can catch us next week. Cause let me tell you right now, the devil is a liar. You gotta be filled with Holy Ghost fire when you go down. In the name of Jesus, when you go down, you better be prayed up and full of the word. You better lean on faith and not what you heard. And pick up your sword and put on your shield. You better make sure what you got is real. Because you're going to make old Satan matter when you go down. So you better have just what Jesus had when you go down Cause let me tell you right now the devil is a liar You gotta be filled with Holy Ghost fire when you go down In the name of Jesus when you go down When you go down In the name of Jesus when you go down See you then